0: Hello and welcome to the Freight Fine Podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Jennifer Carpenter, President and CEO of the American Waterways Operators, or AWO. Now, being mainly a full truckload guy, I have to admit that I don't know that much about the U.S. domestic tugboat, towboat, and barge industry. That's why I'm really excited to have Jennifer join us, so she can shed some light on this often overlooked segment of the freight transportation industry. With more than 30 years in the industry, Jennifer has great insights into where it has come from, where it's going, and how it contributes to the national economy. In our conversation, we discuss the size and the scope of the domestic waterways industry, how it fits into various supply chains, and the importance of the Jones Act. Now, this is a sometimes contentious regulation, But the Jones Act essentially restricts all domestic water routes, that is, from one U.S. port to another U.S. port, is restricted to U.S.-built, crewed, and flagged vessels. Cabotage rules like this exist for most other transport modes and are common in most other countries as well, but it's still a point of contention, as it does, by design, restrict competition. This is a great conversation. I certainly learned a lot about an industry that I've really overlooked in the past, so I hope you can join us in following my conversation with Jennifer. I'll be joined by Dr. Yu to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the Freight Find Podcast.
1: Thanks, Chris. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, this is a kind of a departure from my typical uh, guest. Usually, I'm focused heavily in truckload trucking, shippers, brokers, software. This is my first time talking to someone who deals with water, so this is this should be interesting. So we, we might be I might be asking a lot of stupid questions, but that's okay because the audience here is mainly shippers, brokers, and carriers, surface road people, and so we're not as familiar with the tugboat, towboat, and barge industry. So give us some background, give us the one one on this segment of the industry.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. And that is actually a great lead in because it's not just you and your audience who are less familiar with the tugboat towboat barge industry. I think it's most Americans, you know, people are on the roads with trucks. They are at grade crossings with trains. They are in airports probably more than they want to be. But barges and the towing vessels that move them, barges are non-self-propelled, They are either pushed or pulled by towing vessels. Tugboats or towboats have a tremendous impact on our transportation system. They move about 665 million tons of cargo a year. That is throughout the inland river systems. It is on all three coasts, on the Great Lakes. Tugboats also perform really important harbor services, in ports and harbors around the country, assisting ocean-going ships into and out of port, doing things like fueling cruise ships, tanker escort, all kinds of services there.
0: Okay, so so would if you break it up, you've got the three coasts, you've yep. got the inland waterways and the Great Lakes. Is it mainly on the waterways or mainly on the Great Lakes? How is the proportion there?
1: Yeah, so by volume and by number of vessels, the vast majority are on the inland waterway system. Okay. That does not understate the importance of the coastal routes. It's just that. On the inland system, the barges are smaller, and there's way more of that. So there are about 5,500 towing vessels in operation and about 30,000 barges.
0: Wow. So a barge is a single barge unit. So let's give it identity of scale. A single barge is how many rail cars?
1: Single barge is 16 rail cars or 70 trucks. Okay. Just to kind of step back for a sec, you rarely have just a single barge. Usually on the rivers, you will have a tow made up of one boat and many barges. So on a narrower, smaller river with locks and dams, you might have a 15 barge tow. On the Lower Mississippi River, where you got a big, wide river, no locks, you could have 40, 45 barges in a single tow.
0: Wow. And so is the Mississippi the predominant river where most of the barges are? What are the other major rivers?
1: Yeah, the Mississippi River system is like the superhighway of right. America's inland waterway system.
0: So, and it seems like it's... Uh... Obviously, stuff has to move in both directions, but is more heading south like agriculture? I assume that's one of the major commodities heading south to the ports to be exported. What's the type of commodities southbound versus northbound? Do they differ dramatically?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of agricultural commodities moving southbound, moving northbound, you have inputs for that agriculture. So you have fertilizer, for example. You have Petroleum products moving northbound. You have road salt for winter, something we're not thinking a whole lot about at this time of year, but, you know, right. the, day, the day will come. You have sandstone and gravel for construction projects moving in both directions. Petrochemicals, a lot of those move along the Gulf coastal Waterway. Many then go up the Mississippi River system.
0: Is there any container volume? going on this of of commodities i'm trying to think of what containerization or is this mainly you know general commodities
1: yeah so the majority of cargo moved by barge is bulk commodities whether that is petroleum products petrochemicals grain fertilizer steel ores raw materials that kind of thing there is containerized cargo that moves you know just to give you a, a few examples of corridors there's you know Baton Rouge to New Orleans, James River, Hampton Roads to Richmond, Virginia. There is some cool stuff going on in the New York Harbor area trying to get FedEx or UPS trucks off the road and move some of that by barge.
0: And I imagine the, the efficiency is dramatically different downstream versus upstream. Is it dramatic as much? I know back in the day when you had oxen, right, pulling barges and everything, it was very, going downstream was very different from going upstream. Is that does that have as much know, of an we, impact these days?
1: I would say the efficiency of forge transportation doesn't really depend on whether you're going upstream or downstream. The efficiency very much depends on the condition of the river, which is one of the reasons why our industry works really closely with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Coast Guard to keep the waterways open for business. Because, you know, it's a dynamic environment out there you know, there are floods, there are droughts, there is ice, there is stuff. And so we work with the Corps of Engineers to make sure that navigation channels are dredged. We work with the U.S. Coast Guard to make sure that channels are marked using buoys, that electronic charts are up to date. And all of that goes into, again, making sure we keep those highways open for
0: business. So let's talk about the coasts, because I'm curious if uh, something happens here that happens in Europe a little more often, because there are more navigable rivers, I would think, in Europe compared to the U.S. in terms of its size and everything. We have railroads that could go further and everything. What about the short sea shipping, those kind of things that move up and down the coast? Is that something that is commonly done? Is that rare? So the majority
1: of the cargo that is moving by barge on the coasts is bulk commodities. Um, whether that is petroleum products that are moving from the Gulf Coast up around Florida to the mid-Atlantic and the okay. Northeast, salt, sugar, coal, other bulk commodities. There is some movement of containerized cargo. I would say not as much as in Europe. And, you know, frankly, one of the things that the U.S. transportation system would greatly benefit from is greater utilization of the waterways as an alternative to or a supplement to because the landside modes of transportation are critically important. They're not going away. That's not what anybody's saying. But, you know, we've got a need for resilience. We've got a need for alternatives. And bark transportation gives us just tremendous additional options that are safe, that are efficient, and that are environmentally very sustainable.
0: So are barges operated also on the, in the Atlantic coast, the Pacific and in the Gulf? I thought those would be more seafaring ships. There's still, are there different types of barges?
1: Different types of barges. Exactly. So what you will see on the coast, you know, I gave the example of on the inland waterways, you've got one towboat and it's moving 15 to 45 barges depending on where it is. On the coast, you will see one tugboat and one barge. Typically, they're much larger. Okay, one of the uh, sort of innovations over the last thirty plus years is something called the articulated tug barge unit, or ATB. And what this does is it gives you the efficiency of two separable units: a tugboat and a barge. That you know are uh, are two separate vessels but the better seakeeping ability, the better speed that comes with a design where they are connected. And so they operate like a unit. If you didn't know any better, you might look at it and think, oh, that's a self-propelled ship. Actually, you know, it's a tugboat with this big barge ahead of it. The uh, boat and barge fit together in like kind of a notched configuration so they can ride out waves and move safely.
0: That that sounds like it's a water similarity to a tractor or trailer. Yeah. Where you can that's a, so it's detachable. So it's a yep. one boat to one one barge. And are these barges bigger than the uh the river barges you said? Yeah.
1: Much, much, much bigger. So okay. you could have a articulated tug barge unit with two hundred and fifty thousand barrels of cargo in it. these okay. things can get big. Yeah.
0: And I assume they don't go too far off the coast.
1: They can go, they can go very, they can cross the ocean.
0: So if they go, and we'll talk about this in a second. What makes domestic shipping so interesting is some of the yes. Jones Act, Cabotage, those kind of rules. We'll get into that in a second. But are these mainly specialized vehicles for going up and down the coast in the U.S.? Or are they, you see these same types of ships across the world at different places?
1: So I think the these vessels have very much developed to serve the U.S. market. You know, okay. there yeah. are... They're, they're very much purpose-built and developed to serve the si- the lot sizes, you know, that we need and right. really to to fit the market that we have in terms both of, you know, commodity lot sizes, but also geography, you know, you're not going to be bringing.
0: Yeah, the trucks do the same thing. You only find 53-foot trailers here in the U.S., really. Everything else is 40-20 ISO standards, and it makes sense because our highways are designed for it. Now that makes that makes yep. a ton of sense is there any use case of of because one of the problems with the shipping industry ocean shipping right now is the ships keep getting bigger and bigger and this means the cost per moving a container drops port to port but it restricts the number of ports that ship can go to it increases the issues at by when it gets to the port so is there any talk about the barges taking uh, say some of the containers and from a mega ship and then going to a bunch of smaller ports up and down the coast that can't handle these mega ships. They do this in Europe.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, something that the U.S. Maritime Administration has been working to promote over the last couple, 15 years or so, something called the U.S. Marine Highways program. Used to be okay. called short sea shipping, which, you know, was a term a lot of people said, huh? What does that mean? So, U.S. Marine Highways was more inclusive. And the idea really is, how can we Facilitate water transportation as an alternative to some right. of those really congested landside routes, whether that is along the coast or whether that is inland river transportation. Now, it's important, I think, to remember that the system needs to be designed for that. So it's not as simple as saying, okay, well, uh, you know, let's just move it by barge. Okay, let's make sure we have loading and unloading facilities terminals that are geared to that we've got a system that has been sort of built up around uh cargo coming off containers coming off a ship and getting onto truck chassis and off they go right um possible to have alternatives to that yes um we've got to we've got to develop
0: no that makes that makes sense i actually like short sea shipping It's, it's one of those fun phrases to say uh, american oh uh, America's America, marine highways just it just doesn't roll off the tongue as much <laughs> yeah and you raised a really interesting point, Jennifer in that the challenge is not on the water it's the connection points but it seems like it it could be a valuable area to grow into because containers uh, you know it's increasing uh, the volumes that are coming through so where do you see amongst all the different uh, areas that this industry operates where's the where's the growth? Where do you see the focused area of growth? Is agriculture growing on the inland waters? Is Great Lakes? Is anything coming in from over the Arctic? What's, where do you see the next big boom?
1: You know, a couple of things I think would be really interesting, and they center around energy. So right now, petroleum products are the largest commodity group moved by barge. When I started in this industry 30 years ago, it was coal. Now it's petroleum products as we move into an era of energy transition it's really interesting to think about first of all there's going to continue to be significant demand for petrochemicals and for you know barge transportation of petroleum products whether used in the US or exported but thinking about barges as part of a supply chain for alternative fuels whether we're talking yeah. about ammonia or methanol or Biofuel. Barges are going to be a really important part of that. On the coast, it's been really interesting to see. You know, we're in the early stages of the build out of offshore wind in this country. But as somebody in that business said to me not long ago, you know, offshore wind is a maritime industry. Absolutely. And really stands to be probably the biggest new market for our industry in a generation because pretty much everything that Happens out there, you know, everything that happens out there is going to have to move by water. And most yep. of that is going to be U.S. vessels.
0: Yeah, that, that makes that makes sense. I'm, here's my first stupid question. Maybe it isn't my first. Have, I've asked several stupid questions. That I didn't realize they were stupid. Um, no. Does natural gas, is that moved on barges? Natural gas?
1: That's, that's a great question. One of the things that we have seen over the last seven or so years is the development of an LNG, liquefied natural gas, bunkering industry in the U.S. And we have seen in a relatively short time the size of these LNG barges grow, whether they're fueling uh, cruise ships or container ships. So that is a kind of interesting now, you know, the most efficient way to move gas, as you know, is by pipeline, for sure. But LNG, as a fuel as a maritime fuel, you know, and moving that by barge, this, is, uh, this has been a pretty interesting area of growth.
0: All right. So that that's pretty interesting. Now, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what AWO does, the American Waterways Operators, and what, what your yeah. organization does for this?
1: Absolutely. So we say AWO, which has been around since 1944, is the tugboat, towboat, and barge industry's advocate, resource, and united voice. For safe, sustainable, and efficient transportation on America's waterways, oceans, and coasts. And no, I'm not reading that. So unpacking that a little bit, advocate. You know, we advocate for public policy that supports mm-hmm. the health and growth of our industry. Resource. We are here to help members with best practices for safety, for environmental stewardship. We're here to provide information. We're here to provide forums that enable industry experts to get together and learn from each other and united voice you know we're here in this very crowded noisy you know media sphere to make sure that our industry story gets told thinking about what you said at the very beginning of this conversation you know i don't know that much. most of my listeners don't know that much about maritime transportation and that's part of our job is to uh you know kind of raise the uh decibel level a little bit
0: yeah, that, that makes sense. So would you view your organization similar to American Trucking Associations, ATA, or ARA, the American Railroad Association, or TIA, or one of the educational ones like CSCMP?
1: Yeah, I think the um, AAR and ATA examples are great. Those are great analogies because okay. we are here. I mean, and they are, you know, they're modal competitors, but they're also modal partners. We have plenty of Shared challenges. And, you know, we're all trying to make sure that we have safe, sustainable, efficient transportation in the U.S. We are all challenged by making sure that we have, you know, the next generation of workers knowing about and wanting to come into our industries. We're all, you know, we're kind of all in this together in that respect. And because you mentioned the Jones Act, I know we'll talk about that in a minute. You know, we're all operating under the framework of U.S. law. We're all paying workers American wages. We're all paying taxes. We're all complying with, uh, you know, federal and state requirements. And so, uh, you know, this is this is common cause that we've got.
0: What's interesting is and I'm going to ask you a question about what you've seen as a change over the 30 plus years you've been with uh, AWO. Is when I wasn't gotten in got into this industry in the '90s, I was mainly working with shippers, helping them procure transportation assets. And at that time, carriers, uh, truck trucking companies, and railroads were at odds because they were fighting over the same domain. That's changed a lot in the surface uh, area with the intermodal, and they they see there's a niche for both, and they both play well in different areas. Has that evolved the same way for the barge side, or is there is there always was there ever competition to say rail? or pipeline and barge. And now has that changed? How has that evolved?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there certainly is competition between barge Mm -hmm. and rail and, you know, that exists in the marketplace. But I think from a public policy in the public policy arena, you know, we first of all, we try not to pick fights with modal competitors, especially ones who are way bigger than we are. Uh, We are tiny, but (laughs) Mike, so again, you know, I mean, folks compete head to head in the marketplace, but where we can work together with common cause, we want to do that.
0: Yep. Okay. Yeah. It, it seems like it's changed a lot. I remember doing stuff where you wouldn't want to give anything. They, they were just mortal enemies. And a lot of it was trying to see where can I get market share from the other side. And so you'd always have uh, the railroads talking against you know, extending the size of, of uh, vehicles. And, and so it seemed to make the other side less competitive. But I, I've seen less of that of late. So, I'm mean, interesting to Indeed. see that change.
1: Yeah, same. And just as an industry, we frankly don't see a lot of productivity or a lot of value to try and to uh, score points at the expense of other modes. Now, that doesn't mean you know that we don't loudly and proudly tout our advantages. And, Uh you know, if you want to annoy our members, don't call them the safest, most efficient mode of uh, transportation in the U.S. because they will set you straight. But, uh, you know, it's really about touting our advantages and looking to move more cargo by water, but not, you know, viewing it as a zero sum game.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. So how has AWO or your view of this industry, this market changed over 30 years? What's the biggest thing? If you could teleport yourself back in time to you 30 years ago, what would be the most surprising thing you could tell yourself?
1: So what has been just awesome and incredibly rewarding has been the industry safety journey. So I came into the industry in 1990, which was just as, con- literally the same week, but fact, as Congress was passing the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. This was Congress's response to the Exxon Valdez. For the record, the Exxon Valdez was not a barge. Um, But (laughs) the Pollution Act of 1990, you know, ushered in just a sea change in the regulation of marine transportation. Certainly marine transportation of petroleum, but really all marine transportation. And it has been just a a wonderful and actually gratifying experience over the 30 plus years in Suez years to see the evolution of the industry from a safety standpoint. And within AWO, that has really taken the form of, you know, kind of the first early steps toward, gosh, you know, the Coast Guard now has 80 new regulatory mandates Congress has imposed on. The Coast Guard, by the way, is the primary regulatory agency. They okay. got like 80 new rules they have to write. Maybe instead of waiting to tell them that whatever they did, they did wrong. We ought to see if there's a way that we can position ourselves as constructive partners. They have to do this. Wouldn't they be more effective with a little constructive input from us? That then evolved into industry developed safety standards, hey, rather than waiting for Congress or the Coast Guard to tell us we ought to put in place a safety management system for our industry, maybe we ought to do that ourselves, you know, both because it's the right thing to do and also because we'd rather be masters of our own destiny and not, you know, see if we can wait to, uh, you know, have something imposed on us, which led, amazingly, to our industry In the early 2000s, saying, okay, we have done a tremendous amount of good with industry developed safety standards. And there are things we can't do with that, right? Right. These are voluntary. Is it time for us to go to the Coast Guard and support them in going to Congress and actually seeking new legislation to raise the regulatory floor for the whole industry? And we did that. Last year, the culmination of that journey was. Every towing vessel in the U.S. now has a Coast Guard-issued certificate of inspection. We helped design that program. Just a real win-win, making the industry safer, but being proactive about it. So we weren't facing punitive, impractical, you know, we're going to fix you guys kind of regulation. And instead it was, hey, what's really going to help and what's not? That, if you had told 30 years ago me uh, yeah, your industry is going to go to Congress and say, "Please regulate us more," and then you're going to work with the Coast Guard to help them do that. I would have stared at you blankly.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let me let me dive in, drill into that a little more because the I don't have a clear sense of what the industry is. How many members are there? Because like for railroad, there's really six carriers, right? For truckload, there's two hundred thousand. How many independent operators are in this industry?
1: Yeah, so AWO has about 300 member companies. Okay. Um, about two about two thirds of those we call carrier members. Those are companies uh-huh. that own or operate tugboats, towboats, and barges. Um, and then the others are uh, we call them affiliate members. They provide services to the industry, whether they are naval architects or insurance providers or paint and coatings suppliers. There are other players in the industry. We estimate. Uh, we, we represent the overwhelming majority of those. Okay. Uh, our industry is interesting because we are... So, comparing, say, to the railroads, you know, six class, one... Sure. There are many more players in the industry. However, the largest companies in our industry are much larger than they were right. 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago. So, there are very large companies in the industry... And there are still and still playing an important role small geographic niche operators who perform really important services to the industry. So it's a very kind of interconnected fabric.
0: So do you, do you see consolidation continue? Is that? Uh, did I hear this correctly? There has been some consolidation of of the in this industry over the years.
1: There has been quite a bit of consolidation over the okay. years, and yes, I do think. I do think that it will continue. I don't think we're headed to, you know, six barge companies because the industry is so geographically and operationally diverse that there really is, there is a need, you know, for some specialization for folks who are providing harbor services, bleeding services, things that kind of make it all fit together. But I, yes, do anticipate more consolidation, especially, you know, kind of having emerged from the, you know, kind of COVID bold runs and uh, you know, folks looking for for opportunity.
0: Yeah, because it's funny, in the truckload industry where I spend most of my time, people talk about it consolidating and it never will because there are so many Uh owner-operators.
2: You know,
0: a couple hundred thousand of them. And so the idea is it's so easy to enter the market, to exit the market, the barriers are low, it's a great entrepreneurial path for blue-collar, it's never going to consolidate. But LTL is tremendously consolidating with yellow going under. It's even going to consolidate a little more. Um, Do you, where do you put the barges on that side? Is it, it sounds like it's closer to the LTL side of things than the truckload thing. Is that a fair statement Do we have, we'll have more consolidation?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we will, we will have more consolidation and we will have, and one of the things we have seen is we have seen more companies expand into multiple geographic areas you know Ah. so maybe uh you would have had a company that so when i started at the industry um it would have been very rare if not impossible to find a company that operated barges on the inland waterways barges on the atlantic coast barges on the gulf and west coast you have that now or, you know, to have a company that had traditionally been operating on the Ohio River system, moving a lot of coal. Uh, well, now now some of these companies, they're saying, hmm, I need to expand into new markets. And, you know, I see a lot of opportunity in petrochemicals. I'm going to open an office in Houston. And all of a sudden, that part of the operation is larger than the old one. So there's a lot of dynamism in the industry. Yeah. There is consolidation. And, you know, it takes a certain scale to, uh, you know, comfortably comply with regulation. But there continues to be, I think, an important place for smaller operators who can perform, you know, specialized services or services in particular geographic areas.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that you kind of took the lead as an organization to ask for regulation of some sort because the railroad has been has been suffered under unfunded mandates, you know, where they mandate something, but they don't say how you're going to pay for it. So it's smart to get ahead on that. Now, was that an easy sell to your members? Um, is there because that's a big change. So I imagine that would that involved a lot of convincing.
1: It involved a tremendous amount of internal work. And it was really a member to member, you know, that's the kind of thing that cannot be an association staff inside the beltway, you know, in the DC area, saying, you know what would be good for you? Uh-uh. It really was industry leaders saying, hey, I think we've got an opportunity to, you know, both improve our bottom lines, make sure our whole industry is safer, and reduce our vulnerability to uh, you know, kind of regulatory shock. And yeah, right. I mean it it took some it took some convincing Um, I can imagine each other. And there were folks who, you know, were like, hey, call me a skeptic. I see this is where we're going and I can't say I'm happy about it. And, uh, you know, we, but it was a journey we had to we had to take together,
0: which makes sense. All right. Now I want to go to the big gorilla in the room, the big elephant in the room, I guess, the Jones Act. So um, this is something that is core to your industry, to your business, your organization, that many, many, many shippers, don't even know. So can you explain what the Jones Act is and why it's here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what the Jones Act says, very simply, is that cargo moved by water in U.S. domestic transportation needs to move on vessels that are owned, built, and crewed by Americans. That is very simply what it is. And so that applies whether we are talking about you know, transportation between Minneapolis, St. Paul, and New Orleans, or between, you know, the Gulf Coast and the Mid-Atlantic, or between California and Hawaii.
0: Okay, but let me ask a case for this, and then we'll get into all the details. Let's say I'm Maersk, right, and I have a ship coming in, and it's delivering the port of LA. I can make a stop off there drop off containers, pick up containers, then move up to Oakland, drop off new containers, pick up new containers, then up to Seattle and all that and then go back in my string back to the Pacific Rim. That doesn't that's not violating the Jones Act, right? Because it's coming from a, outside the US into the US. Is that a fair statement?
1: Correct. Correct. Okay. So you well, what the Jones Act is really about is the movement of cargo between US ports right? So, right. So, so, so
0: continuing my example, let's say Maris picks up from, from uh, LA, drops off, picks up some containers, goes to Oakland, and for some reason, delivers some of those containers. Are they prohibited from delivering containers that originated in LA to Oakland? Does yeah. that make it an interstate move? Or an in-
1: yeah. Yeah. So you cannot, okay. you are domestic transportation. So whether that is inland, inland ports, coastal ports, non-contiguous ports, Inland, yeah, domestic transportation has to move on a U.S. vessel.
0: Okay, okay. So um, why? Why is why? the Jones Act here?
1: Yeah. Fundamentally, the Jones Act is about American security. And there's really several manifestations to that. So there is national and homeland security. It is indubitably important to the security of the United States that we be able to build vessels in the U.S., that we have trained mariners who can support the military in times of need, who can supply, you know, U.S. military bases, that sort of thing. We have those capabilities. It is important from a homeland security standpoint that the folks who are operating vessels really in the, you know, bloodstream of the U.S., are Americans. So, you know, our system is set up. So we've got customs, we've got the U.S. Coast Guard. You know, they're checking what and who is coming into this country at right. coast or international points of entry. But they are not, you know, having to patrol up and down the river system to make sure somebody's not, you know, getting off a vessel in St. Louis and going to wreak havoc. Yes, there is a Coast Guard presence on the inland waterways, um, but it's not there, you know, to make sure that we don't have Chinese seafarers decamping there. And fundamentally, it's about economic security, you know, making sure that we control our own supply chains, our own lifelines. And you know, think about a situation where, you know, we did not, if we did not have the ability to move cargo between U.S. ports if we were dependent on foreign vessels who could say no, you know, either because, you know, that was a a hostile or provocative act on the part of, you know, a hostile foreign government or just because, you know, it wasn't the business. It wasn't it wasn't a good deal. There was more money to be made elsewhere. And one of the things that the Jones Act does is it ensures that we have kind of a right sized U.S. Waterborne transportation system that we control and that is always
0: there. Well, let me ask some questions there because these are really good points. How regulated is the industry in terms of pricing and in terms of uh, having to serve markets? Is it regulated that you there must be barge service on certain areas, or is it does the business decide that?
1: So, in in most cases, the industry is not commercially regulated. There are some exceptions in the non-contiguous trades where there are common carrier services where you publish a tariff, um, okay. but most of the industry operates on a contract carrier basis. So, Chris, what do you need to move? Oh, I need to move you know, 200,000 barrels of this. I need to move 500,000 tons of that. And you know, then we will, uh, we will negotiate uh, a rate and terms.
0: Okay, but there isn't a, uh, like the airlines used to have, and the railroads before deregulation had to serve certain markets, uh, certain, and that was one of the things that deregulation in rail and, and air cleared up. Do you have the similar type of, of, of regulation? Because you made the example that a foreign entity could decide not to serve a market. Well, a domestic one could make the same decision, right?
1: But if a domestic entity decides not to serve that market, right. another one is going to come in and do it if there's a market to be had. Right. So that's kind of the point. It would be like, hey, we've got to be able, you know, a, a pay. The colonial pipeline got shut down due to a cyber right. attack. We have got to be able to move gasoline to Nashville and to Evansville and to Paducah. What do we do if we are depending on, you know, China barge line uh, to do that or what? And they don't want to do. Oh, well, I guess we're in trouble. No, we've got a domestic waterborne transportation capability that can step in and get that job done. Now here's where your intermodal competition, you know, your competition with other modes come in. If it's more economical to do that by rail, if it's more economical to do that by pipeline, you know, then uh, that's what competition is for. But I made the point earlier that all of us in the U.S. domestic transportation system, we are competing under the ground rules of U.S. law. So gas, if it's more efficient, to move gas by pipeline, then guess what? Most gas is going to move by pipeline. And that's not, you know, a distortion as a result of the Jones Act. That's because, it just moves faster and cheaper in a pipeline. If it makes more sense, and it does make more sense, you know, to move a big lot of, you know, grain or lumber or steel in the kind of big locks that you can move by barge, you know, then that's what's going to happen.
0: So is the fear that if a foreign entity came in... China shipping lines or whatever, that they would drive out through competition or whatever, they'd be able to price lower and drive out the domestic industry?
1: So there certainly would be the potential for economic blackmail there to come in and say, uh, you know, here's going to be our loss leader. Um, we are going really? to uh, massively undercut um, because the people on that on that vessel Um, are not making U.S. wages. We're going, and, uh, you know, and by the way, the building of that vessel was massively subsidized by this foreign government. And we're going to come in and we are going to totally undercut U.S. carriers in that market who are competing on a different playing field. And when we decide it's in our interest, whether strategic or economic, we're going to leave. The other thing is, we just, we've got to make sure that we maintain that capability here because it's not a thing that if you lose it you can easily grow back you know
0: it, it come back absolutely absolutely so i um since it is 2023 i went to my favorite ai and asked chat gpt to give me the top 3 pros and cons of the jones act so oh hear i want to you tell me if you agree with these uh national okay. security mainly to build ships uh protection of american jobs us built us crude, and environmental and safety standards that's why we I had think that- i think that makes sense to me.
1: Chat G- GPT did a really good job there. And I think environmental and safety standards really goes along with what I said about right. operating framework of US law.
0: Yeah. You ready for the cons?
1: Yeah. Let me hear it. Chat- <laughs> I debated okay. John's Bible about this. So let's see what uh, Chat great. GPT has to say.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's, I don't know the pronouns for Chat GPT, if it's a he or a she. I'm going to go with a they. Um, okay. What I do are they say? She- higher shipping cost, limited maritime competition and impact on Puerto Rico and other US territories
1: oh uh, let's 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 go for it so higher shipping costs higher shipping costs than what you know i mean i think uh that is an sort of oft repeated trope about the jones act um but high, does uh you know using um American railroad workers or American truckers result in higher shipping costs by rail and truck. Well, again, higher than what? Higher than Malaysian truck drivers or higher than, uh, you know, uh, Vietnamese rail workers or whatever. So we're really talking about competition within the framework of U.S. law. Um, Mm -hmm. I also think it's worth noting that the cost of water transportation on a ton mile basis is extremely small. And 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 you know this. So, you know, wait a minute. We think we might be able to save some consumer, you know, uh a one cent or one tenth of a cent on whatever. And in the process, we're gonna decimate a strategically important industry.
0: I, I agree the strategic importance, but it it is leading to higher costs. The question, what you're making the point, I think, is it's justified yeah because i think if a if a low-cost country came in they might lower the cost initially but then if it drives competition out that could be a long-term net negative and so there's a lot we of things that are there so i i, we, we I agree with that.
1: that you know at which is why sometimes you know uh folks take delight in, in talking about what did adam smith say about this kind of stuff well you know what he said was for these kinds of strategically important industries might make sense uh, to not have pure free trade because there are other interests that are just Absolutely. nationally significant.
0: I, I agree with that, but the, there is a cost. But I, I'm willing to say maybe it's worth that cost. But one of the cons that they mentioned, I, I didn't get, and so the impact on Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories. What? Yeah. What is that impact?
1: I'm I'm glad that you raised that, and you know I think that the impact of the Jones Act on Puerto Rico and U.S. territories is widely misunderstood. So for starters, what does the Jones Act really say there? The Jones Act says, if you are moving cargo between U.S. points, so if I'm moving cargo between Jacksonville, Florida and Puerto Rico, I need to use an American vessel, an American crew, et cetera. If I'm moving cargo from Trinidad and Tobago Or If I'm moving cargo from South America, it can go on any vessel it wants to. And and so that is a misunderstanding. You will sometimes see folks say uh, because of the Jones Act, a foreign vessel can't go directly to Puerto Rico. It has to stop in the U.S. first. No, it doesn't. The Jones Act says if the vessel is coming from the mainland U.S. to Puerto Rico, then it has to operate under U.S. under U.S. law. Um, and it, so, it,
0: go ahead. Puerto Rico could be part of a string as long as nothing is coming from mainland. So, again, my Maersk example, they come into Charleston, whatever, and then they go down to Puerto Rico. As long as nothing is moving from a domestic U.S. port to that port, it's okay to be on a string.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and then a- another thing that is often misunderstood about uh, the impact of the Jones Act on Puerto Rico is the importance of that sort of dedicated avenue for exports from Puerto Rico to the U.S. mainland. Exporters, manufacturers in Puerto Rico benefit from tremendously competitive rates to move their cargoes to the U.S. as as basically a backhaul from uh, transportation from the mainland U.S. to Puerto Rico. Without the Jones Act, um, you know, that would be much less competitive for them. Uh, And then the other thing that sometimes folks, it's been interesting, there have been studies uh, showing, you know, very effectively that costs are not higher in Puerto Rico um, than they are in the U.S. mainland. And, you know, let's look at the can of soup or the basket of goods, you know, at the supermarket in Florida versus the supermarket in Puerto Rico. And they're the same. Sometimes with uh, Hawaii, folks will say, my God, the cost of living in Hawaii is really expensive. That's because of the Jones Act. No, that's because it's an island, island chain in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and it's far away from stuff, and it's a relatively small market. And so, you know, it costs more to get there, whether it's going on any vessel. So, uh, you know, there there sometimes is a little bit of... uh, what are we dealing with here? Let's blame the Jones Act. But what is That's, the Jones Act? Easy, for reliability and jobs.
0: Yeah. But um, it's it's funny. Yeah, a lot of more libertarians kind of pick on this uh, more. It's, it's one of those, you know, let's have a real free market for this. And I found it interesting to see that you actually worked for the American Enterprise Institute when you first got out of school. <laughs> I did. The, this,
1: Gosh, no. Way, way long ago. It's true. Well, you know, it's interesting um, thinking about uh, a a libertarian friend in the Congress, you know, who has said, uh, hey, you know, there's kind of two ways to look at the Jones Act. And one is through a free trade lens and one is through a security, national security lens. I choose a national security lens. But one point I do want to make about the Jones Act and where I think it has a special benefit to non-contiguous territories and states, whether Puerto Rico, Hawaii, it's reliability. And we really saw that, you know, during the pandemic, where, I mean, you remember, you saw, the, I'm sure, the wild spikes in international uh, shipping costs during that time, because there was an imbalance between, you know, where containers were and where they were needed and that sort of thing. We did not have that in U.S. domestic water transportation. We did not have disruptions in service between the mainland U.S. and Puerto Rico or the mainland U.S. and Hawaii. Stuff kept moving. Stuff kept moving on time. And, you know, that reliability and consistency and stability is a real benefit. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, we've been saying that for years and kind of pre-pandemic, a lot of people were like, empty shelves. What are you talking about? Yeah, well, that's a thing that can happen. Um, And thanks to the Jones Act, you know, it, it doesn't.
0: All right. So, last question. Like I said, most uh, most of the people listening to this podcast are shippers or carriers, along that sort. So, what can a shipper do to see whether barge or any of that type of waterways operation transportation fits into their supply chain? What should their next step be?
1: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I mean, talk to. I would say, talk to our members, and we can connect them up. There are so many opportunities to. Incorporate water transportation into your overall supply chain in ways that will reduce your carbon footprint, that will add some redundancy and reliability. Our industry, it is AWO members are in the business of meeting their customers' needs. And so like, let's talk, sit down and tell us what you need. And, you know, some stuff can just be done. Other stuff needs to be planned for. Okay, we're going to need, you know, load and unloading facilities that we don't have. That can develop. Maybe it's something that can be done right now. So, this is an industry that innovates. This is an industry that exists to serve its customers. And, you know, we feel like we have a tremendous amount to offer on the safety, the reliability, and the environmental front, not to mention uh, the cost advantage that uh, has long been, you know, <laughs> kind of a calling card.
0: Yeah, there are certain commodities, certain things that just might make sense. The big difference here is like with railroads, you're constrained by geography you can only go where the rivers go but that that makes sense to it uh, if you can leverage that for a shipper to Absolutely. Really look at that and see how that fits in the network thanks jennifer i really appreciate it i learned a lot
1: my pleasure this was this was fun i the boats work together right so maybe you got a water alternative for part of your route and then it feeds to truck and rail. that's awesome
0: yeah you, you you almost would always need some kind of intermodal right because uh the waterways is usually a middle mile. Is that a fair statement? There's got to be some kind of first mile bringing it to loading to a barge and and exit at the last mile. You know, unless you got a a green elevator
1: right by the river or something like that, you know, a barge is not going to generally pull right up to your plant. So we work together.
0: Got it. All right. Well, thanks again, Jennifer. Appreciate it. And everyone, please stay tuned for the Market Update with Dr. Enam Yu.
1: Thanks, Chris.
2: Welcome to the Over-the-Road Truckload Market Update for September 7th, 2023. In today's market update, we'll discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are down 1%, spot rates are down 1%, and replacement rates negative 11%. On the temp control side, active rates are down 1%, spot rates up 1%, and replacement rates negative 5%. In a model, active rates are down 3%, spot rates down 2%, and replacement rates negative 6%. Finally, on the flatbed, active rates are down 3%, spot rates down 6%, and replacement rates negative 4%.
0: All right. So across the board, it looks like replacement rates are negative, and the uh, dry band went back to double digits. What do you think is going on there?
2: Yeah, I think that that was a surprise uh, to see, as as we had seen mostly uh, in the single digits in the last couple of updates. It's something that to, to continue to watch. We have seen the the spot rates for dry van had turned the corner in in April. You know, week to week we see up and down, but overall trend is upward. But the dropping of the active rates have slowed down, so the gap continues to be somewhere maintaining the same amount of gap.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how the active rates aren't dropping as much. They're a little more muted. And spot rates, like you said, they're down this week except for temp control, but they've been bouncing up and down all summer. Do you expect that to continue or do you think spot rates will start tightening up? What are your thoughts?
2: Overall, we are seeing the spot rate slowly trending up. So I would expect it to continue to trend up, especially now coming into the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, at least the seasonal demand should pick up, so I would expect it to continue at least a slightly upward trend. Yeah, it's funny for demand. I get
0: conflicting reports every time I read something. I read something just the opposite, and it keeps coming back. Whether a strong, strong consumer demand, weak imports. So I don't know what to make of it yet. But where we stand right now, we're still in an inverted market. And so, what does the gap look like between contract and spot?
2: Yeah. So on the contract side, we are seeing, again, the gap we are talking about is the difference between the contract rates to the spot rates. So contract rates are about 35 cents higher in dry van. And on the temp control side, it is 31 cents. So spot rates, it's 31 cents lower than the contract rates. Right. And so that
0: gap is, it's closed uh, certainly since the peak of early 2022, but it's not really closing that rapid. that sells a ways to go to to uh be able to close for that market to flip last question though enam, what about fuel? It had been going down for so long, and now the last couple of months it seems like it's on the rise
2: yeah it, it has i you know currently we are showing at four forty nine month over month another twenty five cents uh increment so the shippers are paying about fifty five cents per mile. Still, you know, shippers are not in the $5 range, but, you know, still $0.55 cents a mile uh, is, is uh, you know, it, it is continuing to rise now. Yeah,
0: and so it's less than a year ago by about a dime, but
2: still, $0.55
0: cents a mile, that's a big fuel surcharge. So they're they're paying the price for that. All right, so I guess that concludes this week's Truckload Market Update. Thanks, Yanom. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Inam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on the Freight Freightvine or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.capless@dat.com. dat.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freightvine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.